Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for uh, this morning. Thank you for bringing us here together. No one's here by accident, Father, but you are working. And uh, we would pray that you'd continue to work. Uh, earlier, Father, as, as, a, as a worship team, we were praying that we would have what those children have over there in the cottages, and that is that we would have the simple faith just simply to believe your word. So do what you need to do, Father, to help us just to rest and trust in your word uh, this day as we, we come to this great psalm. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm the pastor, Rob. I'm the pastor of discipleship at Sacred City. And as we consider our series in the Psalms, if there were such a thing as this, as a kind of a back room, underground, sacred city betting pool, um, you're, if you were betting on what Psalms would be included in the lineup for the summer, most likely you would have bet that Psalm 51 would have been included. The first thing I find remarkable about this psalm is the first three words in the subtitle, which are in the Hebrew and are considered inspired. To the choir master. Now, that is remarkable because David was so secure in who God revealed himself to be and how God actually acts and promises to do on behalf of sinners like himself, that he would immortalize in song, that he would ask the choir master to get the choir together to sing what David felt and thought 
as he laid hold of God's mercy because of the second part of the subtitle, which is this. A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now most of us, when we have been convicted of sin, the first thing we want to do is we want to make sure that nobody else finds out. We want to run away. We, we don't want others to remember this about us. Or if they do remember us, we want to kind of move on and let's not think about this anymore. But no, David, rather, he was confident in who he was, in the person that he was in God, in the covenant-making God, uh, that he was willing to be able to immortalize the very sin that he had and for us to begin to learn from from him. So it's interesting because what we're discovering right here is that immediately God wants us to live out what is true for us primarily, and that is that we are, if you're in Christ, we are saints. Um, that is, we are set apart. We are set apart by him, saints not in the fact that we don't sin, because we obviously we already see it here, but rather that we are saints, and that as a result of being saints who do continue to sin in this flesh, we can actually press into our sin, knowing that we already are set apart by God, and we can learn some things uh, about ourselves and about sin, and we can move forward there. So in Psalm 51, David, what he is doing, he is expressing how to respond in the crush of the conviction of sin. So the simple question we're going to ask this today, today and answer is, how can we be crushed by the conviction of sin in a way that honors God? How can we be crushed by the conviction of sin and respond in a way that honors God? Now, before we get to Psalm 51, we do need to deal with something, and that is we do need to deal with the justice of God's forgiveness. It's outrageous. We need to look briefly at the historical context that is referenced in the subtitle about Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet. So we're going to pick up that story, uh, that incident, the Bathsheba incident in 1 Samuel 11. And rather than going back and reading what is probably familiar with the majority of you and for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize the incident, including the role of the prophet, of uh, Nathan the prophet. One late afternoon... David, the king of Israel, is walking on the roof of his palace and he sees a woman bathing, Bathsheba. He recognized her as beautiful, which is not a sin. But rather than protecting her, he lusted after her. Worse, in the inquiry he learned, he, he inquired after, he, he, in, in that inquiry he learned that she was married to Uriah, a Hittite, and one of David's soldiers who was incidentally on the battlefield even as David is lusting after his wife. He commands for Bathsheba to come to his residence. And the lust of his heart gives birth to his own adultery, but worse, effectively given the power as king, Royal rape. Weeks later, he learns of Bathsheba's pregnancy, and so David schemes to hide his sin, abusing his royal authority. He immediately calls Uriah from the battlefield and asks him, how are things going? 
which had to have been a very odd conversation for Uriah, the foot, foot soldier, to be having with the king. Because David's really not listening. No, he's more interested in a ploy, and the ploy is to get Uriah back home to Bathsheba so that the child she is pregnant with could be attributed to Uriah rather than David. But David doesn't know who he is dealing with. He's dealing with a man, unlike David at that moment, he's dealing with a man who is principled. Uriah, rather than going to Bathsheba, sleeps outside on the ground on the principle that he should not enjoy his bed when the ark and his fellow foot soldiers and the commanding general Joab are all sleeping in the open field. So David does what scoundrels do to trip up principled men and women. He gets Uriah drunk, hoping that Uriah will go against his principles and sleep with his wife. He doesn't. Plan C. David conspires to have Uriah killed on the battlefield. He commands Joab to send Uriah into the hottest section of the battle and then pull back to leave him alone to die there. And the plan works. His sin was hidden. He awaits the appropriate time for Bathsheba to mourn the death of her husband, and then he takes her as his wife. It is then that the Lord sends Nathan, the prophet, with a parable for David. And within that parable, David is the one who, he doesn't realize this, David is the one who is being cornered and ultimately enticed to pronounce his own condemnation. To which then Nathan responds, you, David, are the man. Nathan asks David why he had despised the word of the Lord. And it's at that moment that David is convicted. God graciously gives him a soft, repentant heart. He confesses. With these simple words, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Here is what's outrageous. Nathan immediate reply, immediately replies to David's simple confession with these words. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. That's it. Just like that? He has raped a woman. He has ordered a murder. He has schemed. He has lied. He has despised the word of God over his own personal pleasures. And yes, there will be consequences, because Nathan continues. He says, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. An innocent child, we know what that means. A child who's not sinned yet. But the message he gets from the Lord is, the Lord has put away your sin. That's outrageous. 
If an Iowa state official committed rape and murder, and he happened to have a really good lawyer, and he got away with it, we knew it, we would be outraged. Why is it that we are so outraged? Well, there's something within every human being, Christian or non-Christian, that deeply feels the offense. Contained within the depths of every human being is the image of God. So even though the fall, sin, has messed with that image, it is still there within us. God is infinitely glorious. Thus, sin is an infinite offense against his glory. And this infinite glory is contained within us in a finite way and in a broken way. God's response to David's sin just doesn't seem fair. Or another word, just. How is it that God's forgiveness of David is just? How is it that he can do all those things, be convicted, create all of that pain, confess, and express repentance, and at that, God says to him, Lord has also put away your sin. How is God just in this? Well, the Apostle Paul shares our outrage. Again, back to Romans. It is there where he explains how God can be both just and the one who justifies whether your sin is reckless, like David's, murder and rape and worse, or your sin is respectable, that is, you go on, you go with the flow culturally, you don't create any kind of moral or ethical waves, you're kind of the respectable individual within the community, or whether your sin is religious, that is, you feel some self of self-righteousness, there's some do's and don'ts that you have lived up that other people haven't lived up to. It doesn't matter what kind of sinner uh, we are, the way we practice our sin, uh, David is outraged, sorry, Paul is outraged like we're outraged that God could be both just and the justifier of them. And so he goes and he tells us, he shows us Romans 3, 23 through 26. This is one of the most important sentences in the Bible for understanding how Jesus relates to the Psalms and to the Old Testament. So Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. This is a sacrifice that is given, which covers the sin from God's sinner, from God's wrath against sin. It's a sacrifice. That's what propitiation is. It's covering sinners from God's wrath on their sin, against their sin. He, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, Jesus' blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he pass, has passed over former sins. So David's sin was passed over. It was put away 
to be put on Jesus. Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin. God put it away in order for it to be put on Jesus. At the present time, so that he, God the Father, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Outrageous and just. The putting away of sin is a gift. By faith, you can receive that gift. So we come now to the first response when we are crushed by the conviction of sin. We, first of all, need to, verse 1, turn to God. Look what he says in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. In the face of his sin, David turns to his only hope, God, and asks for mercy. What David had is he had the Old Testament sacrifices, and the sacrifices symbolized the removal of sin and the renewal of fellowship with the Lord. So David, on his side of the cross, only knew this. He knew that there were guilty sinners who were not forgiven, and there were guilty sinners who, by some mysterious work of redemption, would not be counted as guilty, but instead be forgiven. So Psalm 51 is an expression of David taking hold of that mystery. Mystery being defined as that was truth, which is true, but not yet known. So we know what David didn't. We know Jesus. David turned helplessly to the mercy and love of God. We turn helplessly, uh, helpless to the mercy and love of God through Jesus. See, what was foundation for David's hope and still is the foundation for our hope, it is, it is God's own self-revelation self of the essence of his character. So it's an interesting when, when God kind of reveals himself, uh, particularly to Moses. Moses, uh, he's on Mount Sinai after God's own redeemed people have turned against him and they've made a golden calf. Moses intercedes, asks God to forgive and not to forsake his own people outrageous. He would be asking God to do this after he has redeemed them, taking them out of their slavery out of Egypt, and the first thing they do is they turn their back on God. Moses does this. He asks God to forgive them and not forsake them, and God agrees. And so Moses then says, oh, oh. he asks, okay, um, to confirm his promise to forgive he says, would you show yourself to me and your ways? I mean, what are you like that you'd be so outrageous like this? Exodus 33, verse 18, he says, please show me your glory. So this is what Moses saw and heard. Next chapter, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. This is what Moses saw and heard. Yahweh, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, that's the covenant name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The essence of God's character is that he is merciful and gracious and thus forgiving. So you note back there in verse 1, David's hope is according to your steadfast love. That is the chesed love. That is that faithful covenant-keeping love for an unfaithful people. It's God's covenant, this is a God's covenant, faithful covenant making God his love for his people for unfaithful people like you and me. So, so it's on the basis of the essence of his character that we can turn. The first thing we do when we feel the conviction of sin is that we turn and say, be merciful to me, O God. Crushed by the conviction of sin, turn to God. He is merciful. Second response, pray for cleansing. Pray for cleansing, uh, verse 2. Prayer, uh, verse 1 is a prayer for forgiveness. We probably could say verse 2 is a prayer for fellowship. See, Jesus has purchased our forgiveness. He has paid full price for it. It is a finished work. However, this finished work does not replace our daily asking for forgiveness and cleansing. So just as we are to pray for our daily bread, we are also to be praying for, uh, for, us to, for God to forgive us. Jesus sought, forgive us our debts. The finished work is the basis for us to be asking that daily prayer. It's also the reason that we can be confident that the answer will be yes. Yes, you're forgiven. See, 1 John chapter 1, you recognize this, verses 7 through 9. It says this, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. So you see this word fellowship in there. There's a sense of fellowship with one another, fellowship with God, as we come to him and ask for cleansing. Verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. See, that's the temptation that we have. We, we begin to see the ugliness of our own selves, and what our temptation is, is maybe to kind of hide from it. Our temptation is to run from it. Our temptation is to say, that's not that big of a deal. No, he says, no, that's not good. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But here's what God offers. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the crush of the conviction of sin, pray for cleansing. Number three, confess the seriousness of sin. Confess the seriousness of sin, verses three through six. See, David confesses that at least in five ways, sin is extremely serious. First, verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He says sin is serious because it is heavy upon the conscience. Even unbelievers understand the weight of sin on the conscience. Romans 2, 15, Paul writes of those who have make no claim on God. He writes to them, he says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. See, sin has a way to haunt us. The tape gets replayed over and over and over again and can even creep back into our mind at the oddest times. 
Sin is serious. Secondly, sin is serious. Look at verse 4. Because against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sin is mainly against God. David is not downplaying the many whom he has sinned, sinned of it. Think of it, you know, indirectly he sinned against a nation as their king. Directly and personally, Bathsheba, Uriah, the infant. Sinning against others made in the image of God is horrible, but that is not the greatest horror. Sin is ultimately an attack against God. Sin is serious because it belittles the infinitely great God of the universe. Thirdly, sin is serious. There is no self-justification for it. There is no self-justification for sin. So that he writes second part of verse 4, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. So what is he doing here? Well, what David is doing is he's vindicating God. He says God is justified. God is blameless. God is right if he chooses to send David to hell. And this is an important point not to miss. See, what David is doing is he's showing radical God-centered repentance. We don't evaluate sin's seriousness based upon how we feel about the sin, nor do we evaluate the seriousness of sin based upon how our culture feels about sin. No, no rather, what the seriousness of sin is how God feels about it. And then fourthly, David recognizes the seriousness of sin goes beyond doing sin to being a sinner. It's more than just doing sin. It's being a sinner. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. See, God would be just to condemn every human being. It's like we're born into a, uh, with, a, with an innate ability to swim. And we're, we're born into an innate ability to swim in a river called sin. And this is really easy. We can stroke right on down that river. It feels good. It's the right thing that we have. Oh, it's a, it's a good deal. Not realizing that where that river leads, it ultimately leads, it feeds out into the ocean of hell. And so that our only hope is, is that as we're swimming down this river, that there would be someone who would come along and pluck us out of the river. That's God. The fact that we are still breathing right now is the mercy of God. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I can always say, I am better than I deserve. Because apart from the grace of God plucking me out of sin, I would be hopeless. We are saved by the pure, blood-bought mercy of God. We confess that sin is serious because it's not just about doing sin, it's about the fact that we are sinners. Finally, we confess that sin is serious because we recognize that we have sinned against God's merciful gift of knowledge and wisdom. Of all people, David should have known. 
See, verse 6, behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret hearts. See, David was the one who knew that the man of God is the one who delights in the word of God. Remember Psalm 1. God was his teacher. God had given him wisdom, and he was guilty of throwing all of that away, allowing sin to get the upper hand. And so in the crush of the conviction of sin, we confess a series of sin, a throwing away in a moment, the aim of God. What is God's aim for us according to the Psalms? The aim is for our blessedness. And we say, ah, I know how to be happy. I don't need you and your truth. We've thrown all that away for the fleeting pleasure of sin. Turn to God. Pray for cleansing Confess the seriousness of sin. Number four, plead for renewal. Plead for renewal. Verses 7 through 12. Plead for renewal. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now what's this about? Well, hyssop uh, was the branch used by the priests to sprinkle blood on something or someone, and they would do it in this case. A leper who was healed was required to present himself to the priest, and when his healing was verified and he had gone through some purification rites, the priest would then take some blood, put the hyssop branch into it, and he would sprinkle that sacrificial blood on the leper. The act was indicating that the unclean individual had now become clean and was now ready for community again. Same way with a house. A house that had a disease in it, once steps were taken to rid the house of the disease, the priest would come, verify that it was clean, and then they would take some blood and that they would sprinkle blood on the house itself with the hyssop, declaring it clean and ready for use again. And so what David is doing here is he's saying, plead for usefulness again. And in his plea for renewal, there's a second thing he prays for. He also prays for the joy of God's salvation. The joy of God's salvation. See, look there at verse, uh, look there at verse 8. The joy of God's salvation. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now, what is he asking here for here? Well, to answer that, I think we need to notice what he's not asking for. David never prays directly about sex. All of the corruption began with a lustful heart. Yet he never asks for sexual restraint. He never prays for protected eyes or lust-free thoughts. He, He doesn't pray for good accountability partners. No, David knows that the sexual sin is a symptom of a disease. The disease of the heart in which we must be cured of is that of misplaced love or misplaced desires. David knew that God did not have the proper place in his heart, not just his mind, but his emotions, his affections. The death uh, to the symptom of sin, whatever your symptoms are, whatever your favorite sins are, the ones that you are most wrestling with, the, the death to the symptoms of this disease, of a diseased heart of which has, uh, which has improper affections is a joy 
and gladness in God. So that David repeats this request forward in verse 12. In verse 12 he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. See, his prayer is that the brokenness he's experiencing will lead him to rejoice. And how does that happen? Well, it happens just like it happened the first time we found him. We found joy in the brokenness of sin. See, we first came to, using the words of Psalm 2, verse 12, we first came to that moment when we kissed the Son. We did so because God had convicted us of the great divide between his holiness and our sinfulness. But then he revealed his son as the one who was going to bridge that great divide on the cross. So what did we do? We rejoiced in our salvation. We say, that was the day I was saved. But as life in Christ continues, we make some new discoveries. Some pleasant God is more wonderful than we ever thought he was. Some not so pleasant. I am much greater of a sinner than I ever thought I was. I'm amazed at 57, some of the sins that I have today that I didn't have, I wasn't aware of, 10 years ago. I would never believe the things that I love, the things that I place my affections on that are not Christ at this age when I first came to Christ. I thought, oh, things are going to get only better. I'm going to just love God more and more and more. And what I'm discovering is, is yeah, I got rid of a lot of those, those observational sins in my life so you would not know that I'm a sinner. But what I didn't realize is there's a whole bunch of crud in my heart. A whole bunch of loves. So in those discoveries, we realize there's a gap between us, and God is much larger than we first understood, and yet, what do we do? We go back to the cross in those moments when we discover how great of a sinner we are, and we rejoice. And why do we rejoice? We rejoice because then we go back, we put our eyes upon the cross again, and we say, Wow, I thought the cross was great when the first day I come to, come to faith in Jesus Christ. Wow, look how great his, look how great his cross is today. <laughs> I rejoice. I don't have to run from my sin. I can take my sin back to the cross and see the grace of God once again, and I rejoice in a greater and deeper way. It is more than sufficient to bridge the gap. And so what he does, he breaks our bones. Verse 8. Those things that within us prop us up, our own strength. He breaks our bones and we rejoice to find that the cross is more than sufficient for us to lean upon in our brokenness. So look at what David prays for in verse 9. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David, even though he has turned to God's mercy, he knows the drill. His life is the life of sins and iniquities, and that life of sins and iniquities is not over. But joy and gladness is also not over. Matter of fact, it only increases and grows. So that look up again to verse 12. As joy in our salvation grows, it does something to our wants. 
He says in verse 12, the end, second part, uphold me with a willing spirit. As David is praying for increased joy in his salvation, he's praying that it will affect his wants. He is praying for a willing spirit. See, what gets us into trouble, in, into sin, is our, as Augustine says, our disordered love. Augustine believed that our problem isn't necessarily that we love the wrong things, it's that we often love the right things in the wrong order. Augustine defends his argument by pointing to Jesus' words in Matthew 26, verses 36 through 40. Jesus said that all of God's laws can be summed up like this, love God first and then love your neighbor. Well, you can't have the one without the other. There is a sense of order there. So what are some examples? Well, you're building your career. You've, you're often pinned with this choice between your job and your family. Now, the obvious choice is family. Of course, you love them more than your job, but your job is still important, and it's not wrong to want to do your job well and even to love it. I hope you do love your job. But you must desire the good of your family more than an opportunity to advance in your career. Sometimes it feels like we have to choose between our spouse and our children. We love our children. Undoubtedly, they will be a top priority, but sometimes we love and prioritize them to the detriment of our spouses. In some ways, it's easier to love our kids. The relationship between parent and child doesn't come up with the same complexities that it's like to be in a marriage and to be in a covenant relationship with a fellow sinner. But in order for our own homes to operate peacefully, we must prioritize loving our spouses first. This doesn't mean we don't love our children deeply, but choosing to love our spouses first cultivates a healthy home environment that's necessary for an entirely, entire family to thrive. Here's one more example. It's important to exercise our minds, bodies, and souls on a daily basis. In other words, we should work to learn, to exercise, and eat healthy, and to grow spiritually every single day. These are all good things and important for our overall well-being, but what comes first? Loving God and growing spiritually should be the most important. But in reality, it's often easy to place below that, that below the other two when we prioritize our days. So David knew the key to overcoming disordered love or disordered desires is a growing joy in our salvation. So David, in his plea for renewal, prays for a heart and a spirit that is clean and renewed. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We want to be done with the disorder and the instability. The wavering heart that characterizes our sinful choices. So I think of James when he says, the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. See, when we sin, we doubt God's goodness, and as a result, we are tossed about by our sinful desires. So we're praying for a new heart, firm in the belief of God's goodness. And finally, a plea for renewal. We ought to pray, we ought to pray that God would confirm to us our election. That God would confirm to us our election. Verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now this prayer does not imply that God's elect can lose their salvation. Rather, it is a prayer that says, don't treat me as the one who's not chosen. 
Don't let me prove to be like one of those who have only tasted the Holy Spirit but hasn't drunk deeply of the Holy Spirit and thus not held by the Holy Spirit. Confirm to me, O God, that I am your child and will never fall away. In the crush of conviction of sin, we respond by pleading for renewal. Okay, so where have we been? We respond to the crush of conviction of sin by turning to God, praying for cleansing, confessing the seriousness of sin, and pleading for renewal. Well, this inward work has an outward result. Conviction and restoration are never simple, simply private acts. They result in three things. They result in the instruction of sinners, verse 13, public praise, verses 14 and 15, and a deeper commitment to the Lord, verses 16 through 19. So look at verse 13. Then, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. The sinner who has experienced a deep sense of his own sinfulness, the forgiveness of God, the sweetness of restored joy, shows concern for others. There is an instructive hope on the other side of our response to sin. We can humbly help others in their struggle to sin. In the struggle with sin. <laughs> There's also a rejuvenated public praise on the other side of our response to sin. Look at verses 14 and 15. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud to your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my, my mouth will declare your praise. And then finally, a deeper commitment to the Lord which surprisingly doesn't look like the renewed, I'm going to try harder now. I'm going to try harder on being that church person. No, no. Uh, David isn't a, opposed to the required sacrifices of his day in the city of Jerusalem. We can see that in verses 18 and 19. But no, no, rather he recognizes that the prerequisite of true worship is Verse 17, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite spirit. This is foundation, foundational to everything. Being a Christian means being broken and contrite. Don't make this mistake and think that somehow in this life you can get beyond that. Brokenness marks the life of God's happy children until they die. We are broken and contrite all the way home unless sin gets the proud upper hand. Being broken and contrite is not against joy and praise and witness on the contrary, it is the flavor of Christian joy and praise and witness. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, says it best. 
he says, he wrote, all gracious, actually he preached this, all gracious affections, today we would call those feelings or emotions, all gracious affections that are a sweet aroma to Christ are broken-hearted affections. A truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope, and their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted joy. That's what it's like to be a Christian. Paul as he thinks about the Lord's Supper, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread, eat this bread, And drink the cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. However, therefore, whoever, sorry, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. That's what God's calling us to do at this moment. Examine ourselves. Feel that conviction of sin and turn to his mercy again. Ask for that cleansing. Then, he says, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we have judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So when you are convicted of sin, remember God is just to forgive you of your sin. So in that conviction, rejoice. Turn to God, pray for cleansing, confess the seriousness of your sin, plead for renewal. For our God is an outrageous God who through Christ is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Father, thank you. Convict. Do it. Because we can rejoice in it. We are yours, set apart, saints, because of Christ. And so, Father, please convict so that we can enjoy again your mercy and that fellowship and that renewal, all that you want to do in our lives, Father. Thank you for this supper that reminds us again of what Christ did for us so that you are just, that it's fair that our sins are covered, that our sins are forgiven. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name.